you know, I'm sitting in a tent and I'm having tea with, you know, these Indians that are trying to climb the mountain or with Ukrainians or Russians or all these different nationalities. And I'm keeping an open mind because I think I'm an open-minded person and I'm hearing their stories and I'm communicating with them and I'm looking right into their eyes and we're talking about, you know, our climbs and the weather and our families and everything. And it didn't take that long before I realized, you know what, these people are just like me. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. Today I'm excited to bring back to New Angle, legendary climber and New York Times bestselling author and fellow New Hampshire native Mark Sinnott. Mark's new book, The Third Pole, documents the amazing story of his team's mission to solve one of the greatest mysteries of Mount Everest history, whether or not George Mallory and Sandy Irvin were the first people to stand on the summit. That mission is also captured in the amazing films Lost on Everest and the shorter edit The Ghosts Above. It's a riveting story that confronts many of the dominant and oversimplified narratives associated with Mount Everest. Mark, really excited to have you back. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks. This is awesome. Thanks for having me, Justin. So, so many things to congratulate you on. The climb, the films, the book. Um, how does it feel to be kind of through the other side of it all? Well, I think it will feel good once I'm fully on the other side, <laughs> but I feel like I'm not quite there. Sure. And I'm, I'm actually right in the crux, really, of the whole thing, which is you know, launching the book and actually sharing it with everyone. And uh, it it feels a little bit overwhelming, actually. Not as deeply satisfying as, as, as you might think. It's sort of weird in that climbing is kind of like that too. And, you know, you get to the summit and you, you, you project a lot onto it and you always think that it's you know, going to be this, this epic climax, but, um, then you get there and usually you're just fried. <laughs> and so it feels a little bit like that. Um, the, the past, it's like almost three years now that I've, that I've put into this project. Yeah. And then you situate that and, you know, this time of COVID that we've been living through the last year or so, it's like a hard time to, pause and celebrate and, and just take a breath. So I can imagine like just this, this push you've been in is yeah. Overwhelming seems like the right word. Yeah. It does feel that way a little bit. Um, and yeah, COVID has been good and bad for me in some ways. I, I benefited personally because it made it easier for me to write because I wasn't going anywhere. And all of a sudden I was just at home and everything kind of dropped off my schedule. And uh, so I just sat down here in my basement office, cranking away day after day, which was kind of what you need to do. And, uh, and it actually felt good to not be on the move so much. And f for a bunch of years, I've been 
feeling like I needed to slow down and not travel as much and um, just take a break. I, I don't think it would have happened otherwise, but with COVID, you know, a lot of us were forced into that. And I, I mean, it's been awful. And um, obviously the world has paid a terrible toll, but there has been a, a, a little bit of a silver lining for me personally. Indeed. I mean, I think for a lot of us, it's the simplicity of life, you know, and, and just sort of forcing us to kind of reassess priorities and, and, and some, you know, when you take some things off the table and off the menu, it's, it's a little easier to force that. I think the, uh, you know, the obvious place to start with this conversation is, you know, why Everest? I mean, I, I sort of feel like the cadre of climbers that you've sort of you know, rolled with throughout most of your career, probably looked at that mountain with some disdain for many years. What, uh, what hooked you in to trying to go after that objective? Well, that's kind of a, a big part of the story, Justin, because I, I think you could almost call me an anti-Everest guy right. for the majority of my career. And I never thought that I would go to Everest really just was not on my radar. I came of age as a climber in the 1990s, which is, I think, sort of the era when Everest developed, you know, this modern stigma that you're referring to. And myself and, you know, my peers, the, the climbing tribe, you know, that I, that I was part of a lot of us, especially the people that were, you know, kind of in deep were, were turned off by everything that we were hearing about Everest and, and the idea that people were buying their way to the summit and that the whole thing had become commercialized and, um, had come to represent, you know, all the things that climbing wasn't supposed to be about, you know, in the 1980s, before the Everest guiding industry started, the the mountain was the domain of, you know, the best alpinists in the world. And all the expeditions were, you know, what you might call just, you know, private purist um, endeavors where, you know, people would spend like their whole career uh, as climbers to sort of earn the right to climb the mountain or to be invited on one of those trips and uh and then all of that changed and so that had a, a formative influence on the direction that i went with with my climbing and i think that's why i you know part of the reason why i i went for so many different sort of obscure climbs like if if we listed them off and you know some of them i talked about in, in my in my first book you know, most people like the lay person who's, who's not part of the climbing world wouldn't know anything about them. Um, you know, wouldn't have heard of them or anything like that. Uh, so it was kind of weird the way that it, that it came about, but it was also part of, of why this trip ended up being so special. And I, you know, I kind of, I, I start the book with the, the genesis of this whole thing, but you know, as you as you referenced in your uh, sort of opening there, it was really the mystery that that sucked me in. And you know, I I've always been kind of a, a student of 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 history in general, but in particular of mountaineering and exploration history. 
and I have read, you know, widely in, in that subject. Um, especially when I was a young climber, I read every classic climbing book I could get my hands on, but I had fastidiously avoided uh, all the Everest sagas. And the reason why is because, you know, I had just been so turned off by everything that I was hearing about it, you know, when I was coming up through the ranks as a climber. And what happened was a good close friend of mine who lives right near me here in Jackson, New Hampshire, was giving an Everest talk. And the subject was the, the 1999 expedition when which they found George Mallory. And he told that story in, in the talk and um, it really captured my imagination and it, and it made me realize that I didn't know as much about Mallory and Irvin as I did about all other mountaineering history. And I remember going home and looking on my bookshelf, which is covered in mountaineering books. And I realized that I only had one Everest book and it was into thin air. And so my, so, so it was almost like the, the modern Everest stigma had kind of created this situation where these guys that, that, you know, were, should have been heroes of mine had been overlooked. And, um, and so then as, as an adult, as an older, like career kind of anti Everest guy, I dove in and I started reading all of these books about Mallory and Irvin and about the, uh, the early British Everest expeditions. And they totally captured my imagination in the same way that all the other stories, you know, that I've always read about exploration have. And that's ultimately, you know, kind of what sucked me in and changed, you know, the, the path that I was following. Yeah. So maybe talk about like, from there, from that interest being peaked to how the expedition itself came together. I mean, because you were at the time, I think you're, you know, your your late forties. You know, the sort of notion of of going on an Everest expedition at that stage of life, at that stage of career. Once the kind of hook of the history was set with you, you know, how do you then kind of get to an expedition? I mean, you could have gone down the rabbit hole of trying to tell the story as a, as an historian, but you'd made the decision to go to the mountain. Talk about that. Why were you determined to go? How did you sort of pull it off with family and a spouse um, and sort of being you know later in your career with, with more commitments on, on the home front than at other times? How did you, how did you make it happen? Well, I, th- I think you're exactly right in saying that I, I could have approached the story from, you know, my armchair, so to speak, right. um, just from, you know, the perspective of, of, um, like academic perspective as a historian. And I'm not sure why exactly, but I, I, I like stories where, the writer immerses themselves into it. I think I like reading those types of stories and I also like being in them. Um, you know, a great example would be a book that I, that I kind of got some inspiration from for this whole mission, which is uh, the lost city of Z by David Grand. You know, so he's writing about, you know, Percy Fawcett and, you know, this search for this, sort of fabled city of gold but instead of just you know 
writing it from home, he actually goes down and, and searches and um, is able to put himself into the environment and sort of follow and 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 Percy Fawcett's footsteps. And I, I really love that that model and kind of like that template for for a book. And you know, when I you know, when I when I got sucked into to the mystery, I I just quickly asked myself that question, you know, what would what would a journalist a writer do if they wanted to tell this story in in that kind of immersive style and it it was plainly obvious that you know you would you would go to mount everest yourself and you would try to solve the mystery and there was kind of a funny thing that happened at that point where that idea resonated deeply as soon as I had it. And, and it's weird that it did because on the surface, I'm supposed to be, you know, not into Everest and kind of against all of it. But, but as a, as a lifelong climber, you know, I couldn't help but be intrigued by it Mm -hmm. and uh, the whole scene and everything you hear about it. But I also just kind of wondered, as someone who spent a lot of time in the mountains, what's it like up there? You know, what what's it like at eight thousand meters? What what it what would it be like to be where Mallory and Irvin were? You know, they were last seen at twenty eight thousand two hundred feet on the Northeast Ridge. What would it feel like to be at twenty eight thousand two hundred feet? What does it look like? Um, and you know, how does, how does it feel? What does it sound like? How does it smell? That's sort of where my curiosity led me. And the, and the thing is, is it was something that I had always been wondering about because I had done all this climbing, but I had never been that high. And I obviously knew about it and I knew other people who had, and I was intensely curious to know what that was like. And so I had to kind of battle through this thing where, you know, I'm supposedly not into that and I don't want to climb this mountain. But once I let my guard down, even a little bit, I realized actually I, I do want to go up there. And, and when we, when we first pitched the trip, the, the idea was, well, we're not going to try to climb the mountain. We're just going to go and try to solve the mystery and won't it be kind of cool as these sort of anti-Everest people that we'd be up there and maybe we could summit, but we'll choose not to. And very quickly, I realized that that was all just a farce. And when, especially when I got there, and I remember the moment when we pulled into base camp, the whole mountain was totally covered in clouds and you couldn't see anything. It was actually kind of grim. Cause it's just this like gravel floodplain at the snout of the Rongbuk glacier and it was snowing out and the ground was covered in snow. I was like, wow, this is like pretty grim, windy. Like this is where I'm going to live, you know, for the next like six weeks or whatever. And the clouds lifted out and I came out of my tent. I saw the mountain for the first time. And yeah, I mean, it was absolutely stunning. Um, but it had, some kind of magnetic pull on my psyche. And I looked up there and I just thought that's really intimidating, but I, 
I want to go there. I want to go up to the top. I want to see what that's like. And that ends up being a big theme in the book and, you know, and in the films is this dynamic with uh, the support team, you know, the local support team. And, you know, they're not necessarily on board with this idea of not going to the summit. Going to the summit for the guides and for the locals is, is a really big kind of career accomplishment, right? It, it puts them in a position to get hired on for more expeditions. Like, talk about that dynamic with the support crew. All of that kind of hinged on the fact that we we were in this kind of tricky position in that the Chinese don't really want people messing around with the mystery of Mallory and Irvin. Okay. And the reason is because they ultimately were the ones who made the first ascent of the Mallory and Irvin route, the Northeast Ridge. You know, they were trying to do it in 1924. That route was eventually climbed in 1960 by the Chinese. And I've I've been told that the ascent represents, you know, in Chinese culture, what the moon landing does here for us in the U.S. It's that big and that important a thing. And I, I go into all of this in the book, but... Um, you know, as, as, as we were working all this out, we, we were told that, um, that the Chinese wouldn't really look favorably on an expedition that was going to try to solve that mystery. Because if you could somehow prove that those guys summited in 1924, it would, in some way, shape, or form, it would taint the Chinese ascent in 1960, maybe taints the, not the right word, but in the history books, there would have to be an asterisk mm -hmm. that said, well, these were the first people to get up and down it alive. Somebody actually had made it to the top before. The same would be true, you know, for the first ascent in 1953 by um, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. And so, so we, <sighs> we worded things specifically on our permit. Like we're doing historical research without laying it all bare. And then we had to communicate with the Sherpas as well, the climbing Sherpas in terms of what the intentions were for the expedition. And I do, I do go into this and, and for people who want to know more about how all this went down, I would say, please read the book because I describe it all carefully there. But the truth of the matter is that we told the Sherpas what the plan was. And that doesn't come out well in either of, of the films. Um, but they did know the plan. Okay. They did know the plan, but it wasn't in their best interest to be really forthright about it because they knew that the Chinese didn't necessarily approve of what was going on. So there's some nuance there and, um, and some layers to it that, um, you know, that, that didn't, that didn't come out in the, uh, in the films. But the bottom line is that we, and I think myself personally really um, benefited when you know, when this whole thing kind of came to a head because 
our guide, Jamie McGinnis, who's a Kiwi veteran Everest guy, essentially told us we're not going to have enough time up high to search and go for the summit. And that was, you know, something that we all kind of had to accept, but it was hard because I think by that point, a lot of us, a lot of us, you know, the, you know, the members of my team were, were getting summit fever and, and that's when the, the, uh, the, the Sherpa, you know, said, Hey, like, we're not really, we're not really down with that plan. And, you know, as I, I describe it in the book, um, you know, that's when I kind of turned to Jamie and said, Hey, like, like you did tell these guys, like what we're all about. Right. And he was like, yeah, I, I did actually. And, um, and I, and I believe that that was the case. Um, but they, they just said, Hey, like, you know, we're here, we're here to climb the mountain. And, um, and we, you know, we don't really like, you know, messing around with, with, you know, dead bodies on the mountain. That's kind of a taboo for us. And, um, and so in this kind of a cool way, we ended up in this position where we had to decide to go to the summit and then do whatever searching we were going to do on the way down. And, um, and I was secretly, silently, you know, kind of pumping my fist under the table when this decision was made, because I'm like, oh, holy shit. Like now I actually, you know, might, might be able to, uh, to climb the mountain. But in terms of, you know, in terms of the whole idea of like the Sherpas being betrayed or anything like that, that, um, and I think it might've come across that way a little bit in, mm -hmm. in, in one of the films, that was not the case. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Raging wildfires have scorched a record number of the acres and killed at least 31 people. continues to climb from those people. devastating wildfires. Last year, wildfires scorched a landmass nearly five times the size of Yellowstone National Park. It was the largest area burned since reliable records began. Fires are getting bigger and hotter and more devastating than ever before. But what all that fire means and what to do about it depends on who you ask. The experience of a forest taking fire is really something. It's not only a gift to us, but it's more, more of a gift to the land. There will always be fear of fire, I, I know that, and I don't pretend there won't be, but in certain situations, there shouldn't be. I'm Justin Angle, and for the last couple years, I've been talking to scientists, historians, and firefighters themselves to hear their stories. You owe it to the guys that died. I wanted to figure out, how did we get here? We're going to knock fire out of the landscape. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. It was a crazy ambition. And where do we go? It just, knowledge is, is freaking power. I'll talk about it in a calm way, but this is me hitting the panic button. Am I making any difference here with the science? <laughs> That's what I wonder sometimes. This is Fireline a six-part podcast series from Montana Public Radio and the University of Montana College of Business about what wildfire means to the West, our planet, and our way of life. 
This is Meg Oliver, CBS News correspondent, and you're listening to A New Angle. And so talk about, you know, some of this decision making and communication is happening along the way. And some of it's happening up high on the mountain, I would have to assume. Just talk about what it's like being up that high and, you know, trying to communicate effectively, make good decisions, all, all sorts of all sorts of issues that you know, when you're when you're up that high under such stress, um, you know, what does it feel like? How does it play out? It's pretty yeah, it's 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 hard and, and stressful. You know, we had I guess we had six team members and when it came down time to finally go up the mountain by that point we had lost three of them to you know sort of various problems um, one guy got some pulmonary emboli early on in the trip and had to bail out so we lost him uh, my partner you know the the guy who kind of inspired the whole thing tom pollard had some kind of weird neurologic incident um, where he got facial paralysis right before we were supposed to head up to the summit. And then Jim Hurst, who was the sound guy for the film and was one of the strongest members of our team and had previous high altitude experience, something weird happened to him and we don't know what. But when we got to the North Coal, he had to drop out. So it's it's sort of like a war of attrition that you go through to on, on Everest to get to the point where you, you know, would, would set off for the summit. And when we finally got to that point, I felt like, wow, you have to actually be kind of lucky to kind of run the gauntlet and get through everything and not get sick or hurt. And when the day comes and you get your weather window to actually be, you know, healthy and fit enough to, to do the climb. The, the other, the other part about it, you know, that, that I hadn't really anticipated that once you start the climb, it's incredibly difficult to eat and to sleep. And I, I am not exactly sure. I know I ate a little bit, um, but I might not have slept at all the entire way. And, um, and let's see, it's one, two, three, four or five days round trip. And I, de- I slept after, after we made it to the top. And I don't even know if you could call it sleep. It was more like unconsciousness. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, Coma. but on the way up, I don't know if I even really dozed off at all. And, um, and I couldn't eat. And I had no appetite and I'd heard all about that, you know, from people. Um, But for me, it was a very real thing. And I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even take a bite of anything. I mean, I was forcing myself to just ingest a little bit of calories, but I I couldn't do it. Um, And I would actually, I mean, I I threw up from, from forcing myself to eat the the food was that um, nauseating to me. So so, so basically, you know, you're under a, a tremendous amount of stress and that makes everything more difficult. Uh, but what it did for me was it, it, it just made me 
realize um, how remarkable it was what 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 the British were doing back in the 1920s in the days before high altitude alpinism really even existed as a, as a human endeavor they they were basically inventing it um, as they went and as everyone knows I mean the equipment that they had in the in the 1920s was appalling you know part of uh, the research that I did for the book was I went to the Royal Geographical Society in London and I saw a lot of the artifacts, including Mallory's boot. And it straight up looks like the kind of boot that you would wear, you know, going hiking in Colorado in the summer. And um, the thought of like climbing that high, not even using crampons. They just had little hobnails in the boot. I saw the rope, which was not even what I would call a clothesline. I mean, skinnier than my pinky about you know about as thick around as a bic pen and it's made out of uh flax i mean you could pull hard on it and just part it um and of course the clothing that they were wearing and all of that you know that was what sucked me into the story initially was just thinking about the spirit that those guys must have had Um, mallory himself called it the spirit of adventure and um and i really wanted to learn more about that spirit and and you know that kind of goes back to what you were asking me about you know immersing myself in the story there's no better way to appreciate that than to uh to go up there and actually follow in their footsteps but also to be up there with all of these modern day everest climbers and they're the ones that we're all kind of told that in the, you know, in the media that we need to hate, you know, because they're bad people and they're doing it for the wrong reasons and they're ruining the mountain and they're trashing it all that. But I, I couldn't help but tip my hat to them. There was there was one expedition on the mountain, which was all um, underprivileged Indian teenagers who essentially had no mountaineering background at all. They got chosen out of uh, these schools, I think, in southern India, and um, went through a course and then just went to Everest. And those kids were up there and, and, and they were doing the climb. And, you, you know, you might, you might sort of say, like sitting from your armchair at home, like, ah, oh, this is insane. Like, what are they doing? Like, and I would think that myself. But then I was up there, you know, climbing side by side with these kids at times and just thinking, wow. Like hats off you guys. Like you got a lot of grit. Sure. Getting after (laughs) it. um, Credit. Give some credit where, where, where credit is due. And you know what? A lot of them summited and I know personally how hard that is. So I was really impressed by that. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit more about some of those, you know, we started the conversation talking about some of these sort of dominant oversimplified narratives. I mean, talk about how your view of the peak and all the, you know, all those narratives changed. Uh, you've mentioned some of it, but, you know, specifically what it, you know, what changed your mind during this trip? Well, I, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, one of the, the main, you know, takeaways that I had in terms of modern day Everest is that, you know, I don't, I don't look down on these people anymore. Who, who want to climb Everest. 
I think that's a really popular thing to do nowadays. I mean, I, I see stuff about this on the media all the time. And, you know, last year um, was a disastrous year on Everest. There were 11 deaths. And just to put that in perspective, in 1996, which was, you know, the famous tragedy that Krakauer wrote about in Into Thin Air, there were eight deaths. So there are actually more people who died in 2019 than there were in 1996. And um, then there was also that viral photo that anybody who has access to the internet pretty much saw, or, or anyone who consumes media saw the picture of the conga line, right? With all the people, I'm sure you saw it, like everybody in the world did. And you saw the headlines, you know, that, that went along with it. And they all just sort of paint a picture of, um, you know, the, the people that are trying to, to climb Everest as, as a bunch of selfish jerks. Right. And, and quite honestly, I mean, I know a lot of people think that, and um, and I thought that because that's what I was told. That's how it is, and uh, so I kind of went into it thinking, okay, well, that's you know who I'm going to be rubbing shoulders with on the mountain, and then you know I'm sitting in a tent and I'm having tea with you know these Indians that are trying to climb the mountain or with Ukrainians or Russians or all these different nationalities. And I'm keeping an open minded, an open mind, because I think I'm an open minded person and I'm hearing their stories and I'm communicating with them and I'm looking right into their eyes. And we're talking about, you know, our climbs and the weather and our families and everything. And it didn't take that long before I realized, you know what, these people are just like me. They're, they're just normal, cool people and they saved up their money and they want to do, they want to do something big and they, they're, they don't seem to me like they're just driven by their ego. They, they want to have a sublime experience in the mountains. That's kind of what I saw. And I think that's actually the same spirit that, uh, that Mallory and Irvin had, you know, this is not to say that it's not a screwed up situation when you have 11 people dying and the whole conga line, like that's a, a problem that needs to be fixed. I think, and I, I go deep into this and I do a lot of reporting on this in the book. And I have a chapter in there that's called the day Everest broke. And it's sort of the story behind that viral photo. Like what was really going on? Cause that was happening on both sides of the mountain on the Chinese side and on the Nepal side. And it, what happened in 2019 is that the weather was terrible. You can only climb Everest when the jet stream basically releases its grip from the summit. Essentially, I think the jet stream shifts to the north. When the monsoon comes up, um, you know, for complicated reasons, the jet stream kind of moves out of the way and then the wind will drop and you can go to the summit. I think it was, I guess, yeah, 2018, I think this is right, the year before, this that summit window, so when the jet stream moved away and it's okay to go up, the summit window was 11 days. In 2019, it was one day. And so when it's 11 days, all the outfitters, they can coordinate and they can say, hey, when are you going? Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. We'll go 
the next day or we'll go the day before you or we'll go two days later because the, the 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 weather window looks really good so let's spread ourselves out and and that's why you didn't hear very much about 2018 because it was a good year on Everest and not that many people died 2019 was a really bad year and as a result really bad year weather-wise as a result everybody had to go to the summit at the same time the thing that people need to understand is that nobody wanted to be in that line sure they 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 got dealt a shitty hand and they had no choice and it was either that or you know not attempt to get to the summit that year so so that i i is is a problem that i think will be hard to prevent but i think it has more to do with the management of the mountain in terms of how many permits are going to be given out by the chinese and the nepalese versus something that you would put onto the shoulders of the people who want to climb the mountain itself the mountain is kind of getting trashed as as a result um, that's a problem that needs to be fixed and that's sort of a deep subject but not all of the people up there are doing that like our team for example we took everything down off the mountain that we brought up and there were a lot of other expeditions that that did there were some that didn't and they left their stuff up there um, you know that that's a problem that needs to be fixed you know there's a lot of uh, now newer discount Everest outfitters who are offering up uh, the chance to climb Everest for like a much smaller price tag. And they seem to be less stringent in terms of who they're going to allow on the mountain. I think that's wrong. And you should, you should have to submit a resume and, and um, you know, be someone who has the qualifications to climb the mountain but ultimately, there were a lot of people up there who didn't have those qualifications, the, these Indian kids, for, for an example. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd personally say to them, no, you shouldn't be here and you can't, you know, you can't do this. Because I, I don't know, I, I kind of like the idea that there, there aren't any rules. I think that should be fixed. But at the same time, I didn't hold it against those people personally. So, so I guess what I'm saying in a, in a convoluted way is that, you know, it, it's right that there should be some haters because there's, there's, there's a screwed up situation going on up there. But I, I think, you know, more of it should be directed at kind of the management of the whole business, kind of what I call Everest Incorporated, and less animus towards the, uh, you know, the climbers themselves who, you know, my experience having actually been there with the mountain is that they're good people. Yeah. You know, that that's important nuance is that you can't put it on the individuals stacked up in that Congo line. They're all responding to the, you know, the incentives in front of them, the reality of the weather, the constraints of the management system. And you can't just say that because they're there, they're bad people or just, you know, single-minded, uh, privileged, uh, buying their way to the summit, all those narratives I think are much more complex than, uh, than we think. And, you know, being there must've been, you're there and you're kind of a part of it at the same time. It must've been a surreal experience to, to kind of be experiencing all that high altitude 
world, but also your mind has to be swimming, sort of thinking about all these new people you're meeting, as well as as well as like the reality being much more rich and complicated than what you had thought. Yeah, most things, most things in life are are like that, you know. Indeed. Um, you know, I thought it was, you know, going to be a bunch of lawyers and CEOs, you know, and that, that, that kind of thing. And I mean, most of the people that I met were just scrappy dreamers who didn't have a lot of money who saved up, you know, to, uh, to go and do it. So, uh, so, so the reality on the ground was, was, uh, was, was a little different, you know, than, than what I was expecting. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was I, you know, I, I wanted to have, you know, the, the main narrative really is kind of the historical piece interwoven with me, you know, my first person modern day story of following in their footsteps to try to figure out what really happened back in 1924. But you know, because I'm actually up there and climbing the mountain in 2019, I wanted to paint a portrait of of what Everest is today, and um, and it's, I think it's it's a, uh, you know, it's it's a multi layered, it's a multi layered thing, I I personally found really fascinating to report on, and to share with the readers and you know, sort of my early readers of the book, the book isn't out, but, but, you know, there's been enough people now who have read it. Um, a lot of them have said that they, they're finding the modern day narrative, you know, the, this, this portrait that I paint of Everest to, you know, potentially be more compelling, you know, than the historical piece. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, tearing through it. I can't put the thing down and, you know, it, it, it is, it's much like this podcast, Mark. Like you go into these complicated stories thinking that, or these you know, these oversimplified stories, thinking the story has to be much more complicated than it is. And your book does a great job of, of bringing that to life. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for it to hit the shelves. I'm excited for our listeners to get a chance to uh, to share in the story as well. Um, it hits the shelves next week. Um, both actual and virtual, um, where would you want to point people who, uh, who want to get the book and, and, and experience it? Um, I would say, I would say to people that they could grab it anywhere where they buy books, you know, whether it's their local bookstore or, um, any of the online retailers, you know, the, uh, the audio book or the, the, um, the ebook or, uh, you know, just a copy of the hardcover. If, if anybody wants a signed copy, which is, you know, kind of a tricky thing to do in COVID, basically you and me talking, like, this is my book tour. <laughs> um, last time, you know, I traveled all over the US meeting pe- people in person and signing books. Um, but there is a bookstore here in North Conway, New Hampshire, where I live, where I'm going to go in and sign a bunch of books. So if somebody wanted a signed copy, you can purchase it from white birch books in north conway and uh yeah i hope people check it out that's the whole point obviously in telling the story is to share it with other people i didn't do it just for myself i want to share it with you and with 
you know, as many other people out there um, who are interested. And I, you know, I hope they will be. And um, yeah, the response has been super positive. So I, 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 I think this is, this is potentially worth people's time if the subject matter is something they're interested in. Indeed. Well, Mark, good luck getting through this last sort of big push of the project, the promotion of the book. I know, I know how you have mixed feelings about that piece of it. Um, and I appreciate you freeing up some time to share the story with our listeners. Yeah. And maybe this summer we can actually connect in person in New Hampshire. That'd be fun. Yeah. I was just thinking that, uh, I still have not ever been face to face with you, even though we've, because <laughs> we've had these conversations and then we've had other ones off the record. So I feel like we have a kindred spirit, but I like, we've never actually hung out in person. So I think that does need to happen. Well, let's get it done. It, uh, yeah. And hopefully it'll be a, a, a more settled down time where we can each sort of pause and reflect. That sounds good. Well, um, I'll look forward to that. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift of UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors and Drum Coffee. AJ Williams is our producer. VTO Jeff Ament and John Wicks made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.